0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm covering two cases in one episode. I did this previously with an episode on Ashley Smith and Adam Cape, which is available on all streaming platforms. The idea here is to take two cases that are very similar in undeniable ways and dive a little deeper into why this kind of stuff happens. Today, we're talking about familicide, or more specifically, parricide. Familicide is a term used when someone kills their spouse and or children, like in the case of Chris Watts, where on August 13th of 2018, he murdered his pregnant wife and two young children. Maybe one day I'll cover that case on my show. To be honest, I did start compiling research and court documents that I could find so I could actually cover that case, but it just knocks the wind out of me every time I start to dive deep. It's a lot to handle in one episode. So, we'll see. But I digress. Today's cases are kind of different from the Watts family murders. The cases I'm covering today involve parricide, which is the murder of one's parents or close family members. Two people, both around my age, both residing in Markham, Ontario, a municipality approximately 30 kilometers, or about 18 and a half miles northeast of Toronto, Ontario, would become so afraid of their double lives being exposed that they would kill their entire families. 24-year-old Jennifer Pan would orchestrate murder for hire against her parents, thankfully while her younger brother was away at school and 24-year-old Menha Zaman also from Markham, would personally and systematically slaughter his parents, grandmother, and sister in the summer of 2019. What both of these two have in common, aside from committing one of the most grotesque crimes imaginable, is that both Jennifer Pan and Menha Zaman were living double lives. Their parents were convinced that they were attending prestigious Canadian universities, but neither of them were, and when that secret was on the cusp of exposure, all hell would break loose inside of their homes. These two, Jennifer and Menhaus, absolutely have no relation to each other, which is why I find these cases so perplexing, especially considering that both of these family annihilators resided in the exact same city. Okay, everyone, I think we've got a lot to cover today. So, beginning with the story of Menha Zaman, I would say it's a good time to jump right in. In the municipality of Markham, Ontario, Canada, 24 year old Menha Zaman was living with his grandmother, 70 year old Feroza Begum, as well as his parents, 59 year old Monty Rue 50 year old Mumtaz Begum. And his 21 year old younger sister, Melisa Zaman. Please do forgive me for mispronouncing any of the names in these cases. The Zaman family emigrated from Bangladesh to Canada in search of newer opportunities for the children, and I'm just not familiar with how to pronounce these types of names, but I am trying my best. After relocating to Markham, Ontario, Canada, Maniru Zaman, the father of Menhas and Meliza, would end up working in the taxi business, while Mamtaz, the eventual mother of the two, would get involved with property rentals. 70-year-old Feroza Begum came a bit later, after the children were born and the Zaman's careers were established in Canada. She would act as the homemaker, while the two parents worked very hard to be able to continue their success and cultivate better opportunities for their two kids. The goal for the Zamans was simple, get good jobs, work really hard, and a good life will come soon after. That is the basis of the American, or in this case, Canadian dream. By all accounts, Mani and Mamtaz were very proud of their son and daughter. They regarded their kids as being respectful of their Bangladesh heritage and were setting themselves up to be just as successful as they had always hoped their children would be. The family valued and were deeply devoted to traditional Muslim faith, with Mamtaz, the matriarch, being a bit more outgoing and social than Mani the Zaman family father, who held his faith very close to his heart and was by all accounts a bit of an introvert. Menhas was attending York University in Toronto for mechanical engineering, and in 2019, he was only months away from graduation. At least, that is what his family thought. Menhas would wake up every day in the mornings, greet his parents, help out with chores, and then collect his belongings and leave for York University campus. His family was so proud of him and were very thankful that he was so helpful around the house on top of being busy and hardworking as a student. But in truth, Menhas would catch public transit around 7 a.m. every morning and he would sometimes go to York University campus. Other times he would go to the Markville Mall or to the gym. Because you see, Menhas was not enrolled in any classes at York University and hadn't actually been a student for over four years as of 2019. He was originally enrolled in Seneca College, a smaller, more hands-on academic setting where he was taking classes and working towards a diploma in electronics engineering. However, Menhas failed his classes and would drop out of Seneca College in 2015 but his family was none the wiser, and they believed he was attending classes at York University every single day. In his family, and some people point out that this is not exclusive to the Zamans, but is in fact very common in immigrant families who put their original career paths on hold to come to Western nations and begin working tirelessly to set their children up for success, it was only really acceptable for the children to become doctors or engineers. At least, that is what a close family friend of the Zamans said in an interview. The family dreamed that Maliza, who was only 21 years old in 2019, would grow up and go to school to become a renowned neurosurgeon. And their son, Menhas, was set to become an engineer. Menhas's sister, Melisa, felt this pressure and tensions in the family did begin to rise. She was rebelling in her teenage years and even temporarily moved out of the family home to stay with a boyfriend, something her family was very embarrassed and disappointed about. Unfortunately, Menhas would deal with this pressure in a very different way. And after seeing his sister's relationship with his parents start to deteriorate, if he wasn't already feeling the pressure on himself to be the golden child, he certainly was now. But, his family was clueless that he wasn't actually a university student, but he was slowly withdrawing into his own shell. Instead of going to school every day, Menhas was immersed in an online gaming community. He would talk to his friends all day, develop his own ideologies, eventually rejecting his Muslim faith and declaring himself online as an atheist. No suspicions in the Zaman household were ever raised about Menhas. When he was at home, he displayed what his surviving family called impeccable obedience. He would often stop what he was doing and rush outside to help his mom with groceries, or he would tirelessly take care of the lawn, shovel the snow in the winter for his family, do whatever they asked. People in his high school classes back in the day also say that they would have never guessed that Menhas actually wouldn't go on to enroll in an engineering program. Whether or not Menhas actually liked school, he always showed up, he always paid attention in class, and he seemed to be doing pretty well by all accounts. But by the summer of 2019, when graduation from York University season was upon senior students, it was clear that Menhas was soon to be caught up in a very deeply interwoven lie one that would be a surprise to everyone that knew him. When all other senior students at York University were set to walk across the stage, shake hands with the dean, and receive their bachelor's degree, Menhas Zaman would get none of those things. And once his family would realize, they were obviously going to demand answers. What Menhas had been doing all of these years was instead of going to school, going to the mall, shopping around, or just wandering, sometimes he would go to the gym, but oftentimes he would go to the library with his laptop and play video games for hours on end with the friends that he made on Discord. Men has actually amassed quite a reliable friend group on Discord with people across the United States and across the world's oceans being the closest people to him in his life. This to him was his family and community, and despite them knowing that he thought he was an atheist and them knowing so much about him that his family didn't, they still had no idea that he was pretending to go to school every day, and they had no idea of his future plans that was until it was all too late and on july twenty seventh of twenty nineteen Menhaz Zaman knew it would be only hours before all of his secrets would be revealed, and he knew that it was only a matter of time that his entire family would find out how deep. His lives were and how much money they wasted investing into his future that never went to a degree. That summer in 2019, only weeks before Menhas was expected to graduate from York University, a university he never attended, his parents threw a party in their backyard to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. Menhas lingered in the background while the 40-odd partygoers enjoyed their evening, Eventually, he would catch up with a cousin who was set to begin at York University that fall for his undergraduate degree. Menhas, totally unprovoked, said to him, we'll be there at the same time. I'm going back in September to do my master's. There was absolutely no reason for Menhas to lie like this, and his lies were becoming increasingly sinister, given that Menhas knew he had no intentions of finishing an undergraduate degree, let alone going back for a master's. He also knew that there was no way on earth that his family could ever know of his failure and that they would have to be dealt with. Unbeknownst to everyone around him, Menhaz Zaman had been secretly planning to deal with his family before his secrets would ever come to light. On the day before what was supposed to be his graduation, July 27th, at 3 p.m., Menhaz Zaman exited his room and retrieved a crowbar as well as a knife. I'm not sure what kind of knife this was, but safe to say it was sufficient enough to do the job that he was planning. Then he went around his home, it was just him, his mother, and his grandmother at this time, and he killed both of them. First was his mother, Momtaz, who he bludgeoned with the crowbar before slicing her throat, and then his grandmother, Farosa, who he did the same thing to. After those two were confirmed dead, Menhas then retreated back into his room on the upper level of his home in Markham, Ontario, and continued to play video games with his friends on Discord, just as he had done all day. Eventually, Menhas would fall asleep, waking up just in time for his sister, 21-year-old Melisa Zalman, to return home around 11 p.m. from her job at a local grocery store. When she entered the house, Menhas wasted no time doing the same thing to her as he did to his mother and grandmother. He bludgeoned his sister with a crowbar and then slit her throat. The last member of his household, Mani Ruse, his father, was due home within the hour at this point. All Menhas had to do was wait. When his father did arrive around midnight, Menhas did the same to him as he did to all the others. Instead of calling 911, Menhas went back to online gaming and interacting with his friends on Discord. But it seemed like what he was doing wasn't just a plain dismissal and disregard for the crimes he had just committed. But was in fact a larger part of his plan. He began to post in various online communities that he was a part of, quote, I've just slaughtered my entire family and will most likely spend life in jail if I manage to survive. I hope I made you laugh at one point or another. I hope you remember the good times. I will miss you all. Somewhat understandably, people thought Menhas was kidding. People on online forums often make dark jokes, but Menhas kept going. Menhaz would go on to message his friend, a man named Devante Nicholson who lived in Minnesota, United States, and confess all of the murders alongside photos of the victims' bodies with the bloodied knife used to cut their throats in one of the pictures. Menhaz would also text another friend, Ayub, from Israel and also confess what he had done. When Ayub asked Menhaz why the hell he did this, this was his reply. Quote, I know I am a pathetic, coward, subhuman. I will be turning myself in. It is here in the second semester when I started getting depressed and became an atheist and ultimately created this plan. So for the last three years, I've been telling my parents I go to uni when actually I was just hanging out at the mall four days a week. I did this because I don't want my parents to feel the shame of having a son like me. I chose to kill them instead out of cowardice. Due to me being an atheist, I believe this is the only life we get. I know it might sound confusing, but what's done is done, and what has been planned has been concluded. I'm sorry if this makes you upset. Please try to remember the good times." Ayub would later tell police that Menhaz had confided in him that he had been actually planning this attack for three whole years, but only worked out the final details relatively recently. It would be his friend in Minnesota, Devante Nicholson, along with several other people Menhaz had confessed his crimes to over Discord, including one friend in Tunisia, that would contact police in their own municipalities as well as reach out to Toronto Police from wherever they were from, to inform them of what Menhas had apparently done. Toronto Police were able to get in touch with Discord and retrieve Menhas' IP address, which they traced back to Markham, Ontario, and were able to inform York Regional Police. There was no doubt that there was some merit at the very least to what Menhouse was saying to his friends. He had sent pictures of his deceased family member's bodies to Devontae Nicholson. So after Toronto police heard these claims, they wasted no time trying to get in contact with Discord and figure out where this guy was living. All the while, Menhouse would still be on Discord, offering his friends even money for being there for him for all these years. Quote, I won't need it where I'm going. Another friend would use this PayPal ID, the one Menhaz was trying to use to pay his friends with. This friend over Discord would use this PayPal ID to get Menhaz's home address and would then go on to get in contact with York Regional Police. The people on the receiving end of these Discord chats were obviously panicking. Despite being dispersed around the globe, they would all try their best to get in contact with the police to try and figure out what the hell this guy was talking about and if he was being serious. Unfortunately, Menhas Zaman was in fact being serious. Those photos of his family members that he killed were very real. On the early morning hours of July 28, 2019, when Menhas Zaman was reportedly supposed to graduate from York University, instead York Regional Police officers would arrive at the Zaman residence. When they did, Menhas noticed them through the window in his bedroom upstairs and then came down to the front door to unlock it. He was detained without incident while his home was searched and the discovery of all four bodies was made. From the time of the murders until when police arrived, Menhas was still gaming, signing off one last time to his favorite online community, quote, the police are here, goodbye. People that knew the Zamins were initially perplexed and frankly in denial. 24-year-old Menhas was what his parents referred to as a golden boy, one who his parents spoke very highly of. Family friends of the Zamans even recalled that after they would leave their home, kids would often get ridiculed by their parents. Why can't you be more like Menhas? Menhas had never been in trouble before, ever, and he would always help his parents with anything and everything. This whole ordeal made absolutely no sense. But Menhas was not in denial and not perplexed about what he had done. He was very forthcoming about it, and even if he was in denial, the evidence was abundant. Menha Zaman would plead guilty in court for three counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder for killing his sister, his parents, and his grandmother. And he would be sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for at least 40 years. What Menha Zaman did classifies him as a family annihilator, someone who commits familicide or parricide, someone who essentially wipes out their entire family. Although the motive seems clear, it also seems bizarre. But unfortunately, this kind of scenario where kids feel immense pressure, real or imagined, from their parents to succeed and then they happen to fall short, is all too common. What is even more troubling is that impending violence emerging from these kids is also not entirely rare. As we'll see, in the same city, Markham, Ontario, just northeast of Toronto, only nine years prior to when Menhaus Zaman killed his entire family, we would have a very similar, yet strikingly different scenario occur. Jennifer Pan was born on June 17th in 1986, making her also 24 years old at the time of the crime she committed. Jennifer lived with her mom, Bic, and her dad, Hue Han, who many media outlets refer to as just Han, as well as her younger brother, Felix. Bic and Han emigrated from Vietnam as political refugees, where they would meet in Toronto and marry before relocating to the edge of Scarborough, a smaller area almost now looked at as another area of Toronto as opposed to its own municipality. The couple took jobs at Magna International, an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario, where Han worked as a tool and die maker and Bick made car parts. Just like the Zalmans, the pans worked very hard for their money, and by being frugal, They were able to save up a large sum of money and invest in their children's futures as well as collect some staples of luxury. Bick would end up driving a Lexus ES300 and Han drove a Mercedes-Benz C-Class. Despite these financial expenditures, they were still able to purchase a moderately large-sized home with a two-car garage and accumulate over $200,000 in savings. Given how hard these two worked for their fortune after they emigrated from Vietnam, the Pans set up steep goals for their children with very high expectations, just like the Zalmans. But they facilitated everything. The Pans enrolled Jennifer in piano lessons at age four, as well as figure skating lessons, which is usually where you could find her after school most days of the week. Jennifer also played the flute in the school band at Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School. She was quite talented, and the people in her life were convinced that if her music didn't jumpstart university scholarships for her, that it would certainly be her athleticism. Unfortunately, however, Jennifer would tear a ligament in her knee, which put her figure skating career on hold indefinitely. I'm sure this was devastating for her, but also very devastating for her parents, who never hesitated to lay the pressure on thick. According to Jennifer's friend from high school, Karen, Jennifer's dad, Han, was a classic tiger dad, and Bic, her mom, was his accomplice. Tiger dad was a term I was pretty unfamiliar with, but apparently it's sort of a colloquial way of saying very strict parenting, with tiger parents usually being highly invested in their children's academic success. From my research and understanding, it's a term common amongst children growing up in East Asia and South Asia, but it also transcends to immigrant households of families from these areas who have moved to Western countries the tiger parent is somewhat close to an authoritarian, where the rules are strict, the curfews are never lifted even as the child ages, and the activities they participate in are very limited. But above all else, academic success is the number one priority. This is essentially how the Pan family operated. They would pick up Jennifer every day from school, personally, and then monitor her extracurriculars very closely. She was not allowed to date boys or even attend any high school events, like school dances, that might promote that kind of behavior in their eyes. As much as Bick and Han loved Jennifer and wanted her to succeed, her friends thought that her upbringing was restrictive and greatly oppressive. And unfortunately, strict parents often create sneaky children, which was something Jennifer certainly learned to be over time. In school, Jennifer would earn moderate grades. She achieved around a 70% average in high school. However, she would forge her report cards using fake templates, which convinced her parents that she was a straight-A student. She was able to get by with this tactic, that was until the 12th grade, and she failed a calculus course, not my favorite subject either. She had been previously offered early admission to Ryerson University, a prestigious university in Toronto, but the school would revoke this admission after she failed that class. This is when Jennifer started to panic and knew that she wouldn't be able to get away with simply foraging report cards anymore because now she was not going to university after she graduated. In her parents' eyes, this kind of thing was simply unacceptable. But Jennifer wouldn't tell her parents that she failed the course, and by consequence, she wouldn't tell her parents that she never graduated from Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School. Instead, Jennifer would forge another acceptance letter from Ryerson along with a high school diploma and continue living her life normally as if nothing was wrong. As you might have guessed, in September, she had started to quote-unquote attend classes at Ryerson. But instead of actually going to university because she never got in and never graduated high school, she would instead leave the family home in the morning, go sit in cafes, teach piano lessons, and even worked as a waitress in a restaurant. In order to save face and ensure her parents wouldn't be suspicious of her disposable income, she somehow managed to amount the pressure even further by telling her parents that she was just so high achieving that she amassed plenty of scholarships. At this point, under the pressure of it all, after foraging several documents, she began to self-harm. Eventually, Jennifer would tell her parents that she was switching programs and that she had accepted an offer to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program, which was yet another lie. This next part in the story is a little bit fuzzy, but I think I might've figured out why she did this. Jennifer Pan asked her parents if, for the first time in her entire life, she could leave home for several days at a time during the week to stay with a friend who lived closer to the University of Toronto campus. Let me remind you that where they lived near Markham was approximately 30 kilometers away from Toronto's downtown core, which is where you can find University of Toronto's campus. Because their daughter was blossoming into a very successful academic, the Pans happily obliged. But Jennifer was actually staying with a long term secret boyfriend that she had and she was nowhere near the campus. Her boyfriend's name was Daniel Wong and Daniel lived in Ajax, Ontario and worked at a Boston pizza. He was a weed dealer and also, like Jennifer, did not excel in school but eventually he would actually attend York University. Jennifer and Daniel had been dating in secret for years, keeping their relationship totally private from Jennifer's parents out of fear of retaliation. If you'll recall, like I said, the rules were strict and dating was a huge no-no let alone even talking to boys. But given Jennifer's claims of wanting to stay with a friend to be closer to campus, and given that her parents were under the impression that their daughter had been a straight-A student with scholarships and a passion for learning, they had no issue with it and were not at all suspicious. And there's good reason as to why they were not at all suspicious. On top of the forged documents, Jennifer would go as far as to buy second-hand pharmacology textbooks and watch YouTube videos related to topics so that she could fill her notebooks with what looked like class notes and she would have something tangible to show her parents. Like Menha Zaman, Jennifer Pan was working her way into a lie that she had to maintain every single day, but for now, it was working. While Jennifer was pretending to be enrolled in the University of Toronto's pharmacology program, she told her parents that she also began working as a hospital volunteer at SickKids in Toronto. I'm not entirely sure why she did this, maybe to seem more prestigious, or maybe it was an excuse to get out of the house on the weekends to continue seeing her boyfriend, but either way, her parents, Bick and Han, grew suspicious of Jennifer when they noticed that she did not have a hospital uniform or an ID badge that she would leave with every every time she went to the hospital. But instead of confronting her with their suspicions, Bic followed her daughter out of the house one day when Jennifer said she was going to a volunteering shift. And instead, Bick found Jennifer nowhere near the hospital. In what I can only imagine to be an incredibly large fight, all of Jennifer's secrets were revealed. No hospital volunteering job, she did have a boyfriend, she did not graduate high school, and by default, She was not enrolled in the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. Understandably, her parents were distraught. Her father, Han, wanted to kick Jennifer out of the house. This was an intense betrayal of trust, but Bic, her mom, begged Han to let Jennifer stay. They finally agreed to let Jennifer stay in the home, but her parents sprung into action to rectify her unacceptable behavior. Jennifer was immediately enrolled in high school courses to finish her diploma, and she was forbidden from contacting her boyfriend, Daniel Wong. She was also confined to the house except to go teach piano lessons, and she was told that after she got her high school diploma, she would immediately be applying to university. Things continued this way until 2010, when Jennifer was 24 years old. She was supposed to have graduated high school in the mid-2000s, but now she was just finally making progress. At this time, Daniel Wong, who she had still been keeping in contact with secretly and who she had now been dating for seven years, was frankly getting sick of the situation. He had been trying for years to have a relationship with Jennifer that just wasn't working out. They could only see each other for short periods of time in secret, which was very infrequent. And when they did talk on the phone, Jennifer would constantly be paranoid that her parents could overhear her. Daniel Wong would leave the relationship and begin seeing someone else. And despite Jennifer's academic lies coming to light, she decided to refocus her lying skills on Daniel now instead of her parents. She began telling him that she suspected his new girlfriend was sending strange men to her house to harass her, one incident that allegedly even evolved into a gang rape situation. Jennifer then claimed to Daniel that she was mailed a bullet and was constantly receiving threatening text messages and phone calls. Daniel had also been receiving threatening phone calls and texts, but it wasn't his new girlfriend who was the culprit. But hold that thought. Earlier in 2010, in the spring, Jennifer was in contact with a former friend from the Mary Ward Catholic High School that she attended but never graduated. His name was Andrew Montemayor, who many claim would often brag about being a quote-unquote bad boy. There were rumors that Andrew Montemayor was someone who would rob people at knife point and was very violent, which are things about him that he adamantly denies. Montemayor introduced Jennifer to a friend of his, Ricardo Duncan, who is someone described as a quote-unquote goth kid. I don't know that much about Duncan, but what I do know is that at this point in her life, Jennifer was incredibly frustrated with her parents. She had lost her boyfriend and her freedoms and was feeling trapped, and I don't blame her. But instead of moving out or seeking some sort of help through social services or really literally anything else but the thing she did, Jennifer would end up trying to coerce Ricardo Duncan into taking $1,500 from her so that he would murder her father Han in the parking lot of his workplace at Magna International in Aurora, Ontario. Thankfully, Duncan rejected this deal, but this did not discourage Jennifer from pursuing the plan that she had formulated in her own mind. After being rejected by Ricardo Duncan, Jennifer Pan was arguably feeling even more motivated to get this job done. Despite Jennifer Pan and Daniel Wong no longer being together at this time, Jennifer managed to get herself back in contact with him after Ricardo Duncan had rejected her offer for murder for hire. Daniel maintains that although he couldn't have a relationship with Jennifer anymore, that doesn't mean that she didn't mean anything to him. I mean, they were together for seven years. And so when she reached out, he happily answered her. After some communication that was evidently unknown to Daniel's current girlfriend at this time, the two had apparently fabricated a loose plan for Jennifer to be able to solicit murder for hire against her parents by somebody who would actually say yes for the price of $10,000 that they were somehow going to get their hands on. After the plan was executed, Jennifer would then inherit $500,000 from the death of her parents and be free, finally, from their grasp on her. From what I understand, however, Daniel Wong was still in a relationship with another girl, and it's not like he was actively pursuing a Relationship once again with Jennifer Pan. It seemed that he would only agree to be with her after she was finally free from her parents. What was even more enticing to the both of them was that after this plan was executed and the $500,000 inheritance was deposited in Jennifer Pan's account, the two were planning on using that money to get married and live together. In order to facilitate this process, Daniel introduced Jennifer to a man named Lenford Roy Crawford, someone who was nicknamed Homeboy and who would also be very interested in the arrangement that Daniel and Jennifer had come up with. To really get this process going, Crawford would give Jennifer Pan a burner iPhone with a burner SIM card so that the two could communicate without using her actual cell phone. Crawford also recruited two of his associates, Eric Sean Cardi, nicknamed Sniper, and David Milovaganum from Montreal. At this point in the summer of 2010 and early fall, The plans to kill the Pan family had already set themselves in motion. Jennifer was going to be free from her parents once and for all and would no longer have to worry about the consequences of her deeply interwoven and incredibly sinister lies. On November 8th of 2010, Jennifer Pan unlocked the front door to her home before retreating to her own bedroom for the night. She then spoke to David Milo by phone, but I'm not exactly sure about what. I can only presume that it had something to do with the plans that the two would execute later that evening. Jennifer's younger brother, Felix, was in Hamilton, Ontario at this time, and he was there at McMaster University studying engineering. And thankfully, he was gone because shortly after Jennifer got off the phone with David Milo Beganum, him and two other unknown men with guns entered the Pan residence through the unlocked front door and began terrorizing Bick and Han. The three intruders battered the Pans, demanding all of their money ransacked several areas of the home, including the master bedroom, would tie up Jennifer to a banister along the floor at the entrance to a stairway, and then guided Bic and Han downstairs into the basement. From the upstairs where Jennifer was tied with her wrists bound to a banister by a pair of shoelaces, she said that she heard muffled voices, a little bit of screaming, and then what she recalls to be four or five pops. Those pops would turn out to be gunshots, and the three armed intruders were shooting at both Bick and Han multiple times in the face and upper body. Before she was murdered, Jennifer's mom Bick blurted out, You can hurt us, but please don't hurt my daughter. During this attack, the three intruders took all of the money that they could scrape together in the home, including what Jennifer claims to be initially $2,000 before they fled. After they finally leave, once her parents are presumed deceased, Jennifer was still tied up to the banister but manages to reach for her cell phone which was tucked into her yoga pants waistband. After she calls 911, she hears sounds that turn into screams coming from the basement. Her dad, Han, is still alive. Han is consumed by the waking nightmare that he just lived through, but he managed to get himself out of the basement and instead of going to check on Jennifer, who can be heard calling out to him on the 911 call, he flees the house through the front door. Han runs out the front door to the home, screaming, yelling, in sheer panic, and he is able to get the attention of some neighbors, and it does not take very long for police to arrive to the Pan residence once Jennifer gets a hold of 911. One of the first officers to arrive at the Pan residence was Officer Mike Stesco, who would discover an absurd amount of blood, evidently as well as the body of Bic Pan laying face down in front of a leather couch sectional in the basement. After scoping out the rest of the house, police find Jennifer still tied to the staircase banister, but they notice that she is able to move away from the railing by about 8 inches. She has either not been tied up very well or she was struggling so much that she created slack in her restraints. After she was cut loose, Jennifer sprinted downstairs to see her father being loaded onto a stretcher and into an ambulance headed for Markham Stouffville Hospital. Jennifer was also taken to hospital but it didn't take very long for hospital staff to clear her of any serious injuries before she was then escorted to her first police interview, hosted by York Regional Police Detective Randy Slade, beginning at 2.45 in the morning. During the initial questioning period, Jennifer was understandably distraught. She had just been present at the scene of her mom's murder and her father's attempted murder but she was able to recall to police that one of the suspects who entered her family home was a black man of medium build who had dreadlocks that covered most of his face so she couldn't make out any of his features. Detectives would refer to this individual as Number 1 because, according to Jennifer, it seemed that the other two intruders were taking orders from him. She would also go on to tell police that Number 2 was wearing a bandana over his face and Number 3 seemed to have an accent that could have possibly originated from somewhere in the Caribbean. But these were really the only descriptors she had and after the brief description was given, it was time for Jennifer to recall to police exactly what had happened that night, beginning from the first moment she could remember something was wrong. During the first recollection of events, she said that her mom, Bic, returned from her weekly line dancing class around 9.30 p.m. Jennifer then told police that she heard what sounded like her mom rummaging around somewhere on the main level of the house. But suddenly, she heard her mom call out for her dad, Han, to help. But what struck Jennifer about this was not necessarily the request for help itself, but the fact that Bick called out for help in English, which is something very unusual in their household, according to Jennifer. She said that her parents usually spoke Vietnamese or Cantonese, so this prompted Jennifer to sit in silence and listen, as her mom speaking in English seemed to be the hallmark of something unusual happening. Jennifer then recalled that only after a second of sitting in silence did she begin to hear unfamiliar voices in her home, and her parents begin to panic. Only a second later, she claims that men barged into her room and dragged her out. She then recalls that at gunpoint, they told her to get on her knees and keep her eyes closed before tying her to the banister and retreating back downstairs. After some commotion, Jennifer heard what she recalled to police as four or five pops, amongst other screaming and obvious panic. Another detective, however, Al Cook, noticed from the observation room that despite Jennifer recalling these horrific events with such overstated emotion, that when she was offered a tissue by Detective Slade, the tissue was still dry when she pulled it away from her eyes. Jennifer was not crying. This isn't particularly strange. Grief and emotion are subjective, but it was certainly noted. However, something of a more concerning nature appeared through Jennifer's second recount of events. She would end up changing some details in her story. This time, she claims that the intruders ordered her to rummage through her mom's belongings and get the money that they were after. As well, this time she noted that she was tied up much later in the story. Despite these inconsistencies, What Detective Bill Curtis couldn't get over was the fact that Han, Jennifer's father, left the house screaming after the intruders were gone, despite knowing that his daughter was still upstairs as she was calling out for him. Detective Curtis held on to this fact while Detective Slade further conducted the interview. He couldn't get out of his mind. Why would Han leave his daughter in the house without confirming that the assailants were actually gone? Did he know something about this situation that York Regional Police didn't? Clearly, by the information I told you in the first half of this story, it wasn't Han that knew more about this situation than police. In fact, it was Jennifer who did. But we'll get to that. Police then made it very clear to Jennifer that she needed to anticipate a media circus. This event is huge and unprecedented in their quiet suburban area, and this seemed to worry Jennifer, but what worried her more is that Detective Slade tells her that her cell phone will need to be investigated. He says that it will only be used to verify if she's telling the truth. After all, she has presented as a victim in this scenario, but it is a criminal investigation. Any questions that she has about what exactly will be looked at are totally left unanswered answered by police and then she is free to leave the station around 5 a.m. on the morning of November 9th. Her father, Han, would be transferred from Markham Stouffville Hospital to Toronto Sunnybrook Hospital where doctors would make the difficult decision to place him into an induced coma to stabilize him, given the fact that his injuries were critical. It was a miracle that he survived at all with multiple gunshots. Clearly, whoever attacked the Pan household wanted to ensure that both him and Bic died but seemingly not Jennifer. On November 10th, Daniel Wong, Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, walked himself into the Markham police station and voluntarily took a seat in an interrogation room. Wong and Detective Robert Milligan discuss his life and details of his daily routine, as well as his relation to Jennifer. Wong discloses to Detective Milligan that the two had been involved in a secret relationship for seven years behind her parents' back, and then goes on to tell Detective Milligan how Jennifer would stay at his house during the week while she told her parents she was attending university when she really wasn't. This led into the conversation where Daniel Wong would totally divulge to Detective Milligan each detail of Jennifer's elaborate lies throughout the years. He told detectives, too, that once Jennifer's parents had discovered all of these details and discovered her lies and discovered their relationship, that they were furious. But Wong came to Jennifer's defense in the interrogation room, elaborating on the fact that he thought she was a prisoner in her own home and something that the two simply couldn't deal with anymore. Finally, he would go on to disclose to detectives that after their breakup, Wong's new girlfriend and himself, as well as apparently Jennifer, were receiving threatening text messages and phone calls, the same ones I had mentioned before. Through this conversation, Detective Milligan was able to get Daniel Wong to confess to the fact that Jennifer had a second cell phone. If you recall, she was given a burner phone by Lenford Crawford. At this point, there definitely is suspicion that it's actually Jennifer sending out these texts and calls, like I alluded to before, threatening Daniel, threatening his new girlfriend, and trying to make herself look innocent by threatening herself. But Detective Milligan didn't spend a lot of time on that fact. Instead, he simply could not gloss over the fact that Daniel Wong had just confided in him that Jennifer had a second cell phone. In Detective Milligan's mind, this is where things begin to make a lot more sense. At this time, York Regional Police called Jennifer Pan in for a second interview, which she arrived to on November 11, 2010, now three days later after the home invasion, which resulted in her mother losing her life and her dad being admitted to ICU in an induced coma. Essentially, before she even sits down, Jennifer mentions to Detective Slade, who is also leading this second interview, that she is feeling scattered and says that pieces from the last few days are getting jumbled up inside of her mind. This is a detail that might be understandable given the circumstances. This is a detail that might be understandable given the circumstances. I know, personally, when I have experienced grief, the next few days are typically a blur but given the fact that Jennifer blurted this out completely unprovoked and given the fact that now detectives knew Jennifer had a second cell phone and a habitual lying problem, they were absolutely starting to get suspicious. Detective Slade decides to capitalize on this opportunity and asks Jennifer once again for the third time to recall the events that happened in her home on the night of November 8th in 2010. This time, in her story, there were even more consistencies. For the first time, she says that she was now taken downstairs first. She says more money had been taken than actually was, and other certain small details are continuously changing. At this point, clearly Jennifer is very nervous, and for Detective Slade, it's the perfect time for him to bring up the burner phone. Jennifer is quick to come up with the lie, as she was evidently pretty good at it. She said that Daniel Wong, her ex-boyfriend, gave her the cell phone and he was paying the bill for it. She didn't know where it was or even when the last time she saw it. Now that she's been prompted with that question, she's even more nervous. Detective Slade decided to turn up the heat even further and asked Jennifer to stand up and demonstrate to him how she was able to call 911 from her cell phone while being tied to the banister. If you'll recall, Jennifer's wrists were bound behind her to that banister and her cell phone was tucked into the waistband of her yoga pants. While Jennifer is giving this demonstration, Detective Slade questions her during the entire thing. And it's pretty obvious that he's suspicious of her. I mean, anyone who's ever put their cell phone in their waistband of yoga pants or leggings knows that thing is prone to falling out onto the ground or even worse, falling down your leg, especially if Jennifer was dragged out of her bedroom like she had claimed to be during the first retelling of the events. Her demonstration on how she called 911 didn't seem to make any sense to Detective Slade. During the demonstration, Jennifer could barely reach the dummy cell phone she was given to place in the waistband of her pants she was wearing and if she could barely reach it, how on earth was she able to dial 911? But when she finally got a hold of it, Detective Slade then asked her how she was able to talk into it without bringing it up to her face. Jennifer said she was yelling. Well, what about being able to hear the 911 operator on the other end of the line? Jennifer said she was somehow able to reach the volume button and set it to max volume. The pressure here is mounting. She is actively doing a demonstration while being questioned, and it's pretty obvious that Detective Slade isn't buying her story. I don't know why Jennifer didn't just say she put it on speakerphone, but whatever. Slade doesn't give away his suspicions just yet, however, but he understands that the pressure is really mounting in the room. So he wants to give Jennifer a false sense of security, and he lets her take a breather and sit back down before beginning to question her about her past. Jennifer was forthcoming to police. She admitted that she did lie to her parents, a lot, and that she had a secret relationship with Daniel Wong the entire time. She said, however, that she does feel guilty about it all, but that she was still continuing to lie. She says that right before the incident happened that resulted in the death of her mother, her parents were under the impression that she was gearing up to apply to university once and for all, but once again, she was still not. It's at this point when Jennifer Pan begins to beg detectives not to tell her father, Han, who at this point is still in an induced coma at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. After everything that's happened, she still wants to lie. As Jennifer begins to get riled up again in the interrogation room, Slade decides to leave the room, and when he returns, he reassures her and tells her that the anxiety she is experiencing is just merely survivor's guilt, but he's just trying to maintain a rapport, giving her, once again, a false sense of security before turning up the heat one last time. Detective Slade questions Jennifer about how the three intruders could have gotten access to her home without bursting through any doors or windows. She never recalled to police in any of her statements or interviews that she heard any windows breaking or doors being slammed in, so how did they get inside? If you recall, it was actually Jennifer that left her front door unlocked that night, but police don't know this yet. However, they have become increasingly suspicious of her. Detective Slade says right to Jennifer, so you're telling me you had no involvement in what happened? Why would they leave you alone but shoot your parents multiple times? Jennifer doesn't give up much information here, but after telling her that if she is lying it will be very easy to discredit her, Detective Slade shortly after concludes the interview and Jennifer is once again allowed to leave the police station. On November 12th in 2010, only four days after the attack on the Pan household happened, the day after Jennifer's last interview, Han was awoken from the induced coma he was placed in at Sunnybrook. He remained in stable condition, with a bullet still lodged into his neck, and he had little time to mourn his reality before detectives Marco Napolioni and Dave McDonald entered his hospital room for a preliminary interview. At the end of this bedside question period, Han begs detectives to quote-unquote use their tactics to find out who did this. Something I have yet to mention to you about this case is that Jennifer's family was also suspicious of her involvement in the murder. It begins with one of her uncles being straight up accusatory. Her family began feeling weird around her at her mother Bick's funeral, and it ended with her father refusing to have her at his hospital bedside until she managed to actually sneak onto the ward. When she does this, Han asked Jennifer if it was her boyfriend, Daniel Wong, who did this to them. At this time, you can imagine as well, the media is picking up the heat and following the investigation as closely as possible, continuously photographing the family at Bick's funeral and as Han recovers in hospital. On top of all of this, police have also begun mounting the pressure on Jennifer as well. It was evident in her last interview more than ever. They were not buying the story she was delivering and she knew it. But there is a buffer period of approximately 11 days after Jennifer's second interview to accommodate for her mother's funeral when she is once again called into the Markham police station one last time on November 22nd, 2010. Police are convinced that with her lies being unraveled, heat from the media putting her under pressure, and her family's suspicions that they should be able to elicit a confession from her regarding at least some aspect of this crime because it was quite obvious to everyone around Jennifer that her story was just not the truth. During this third interrogation period, Detective William Goetz falsely told Jennifer that he had access to computer software that could analyze untruths in statements and that there was also satellite data he had access to that used infrared technology to analyze movements. This information was not true. But in Canada, it is legal for police to lie in interrogations regarding evidence, especially if they are in the works of soliciting a confession, which is exactly what they were trying to do. At this point, Jennifer had become so suspicious and police were pretty sure she knew more at the very least than what she was leading on, but they had no concrete evidence yet to point her to being involved in her parents' attempted murder. So Detective goats would get right to business telling Jennifer that if she is found to be implicated, that she could face very serious charges. But then he switches and begins to empathize with her, telling her that he understands how keeping up these lies with her parents about her education, or lack thereof, must have been very difficult and exhausting. This whole back and forth situation between accusatory and empathetic is Detective Goetz attempting to set himself up for the opportunity to use the read technique of interrogations, one that has been proven very effective in extracting information from suspects, especially confessions. The read technique is a three-phase process of interrogation that begins with the analysis of the facts in the case and ends with nine steps that pull the suspect in and out of a false sense of security. When conducting this interrogation with Jennifer, the demeanor of Detective goats is calm and compassionate, despite the Reed technique being a traditional accusatory interrogation style. These nine steps were used on Jennifer, and they go as follows. Step one is positive confrontation. Police would tell Jennifer that evidence they have has led them to pinpoint her as a suspect, whether this evidence is real or fabricated, and they leave things open-ended, offering Jennifer Pan an opportunity to explain why the offense took place, and therefore why they have this evidence. This is what Detective Goetz was doing when he told Jennifer that he had access to some obscure computer software. Step two involves shifting the blame from the suspect to the influence of another person or set of circumstances. This is the beginning of developing psychological themes that may convince the criminal they were justified in their actions. The idea here is that the criminal in question will agree with something that the detective has said. Police may have empathized with Jennifer's situation, the quote-unquote tiger parenting, her feeling trapped in her own home. Step three involves minimization of suspect denials. If Jennifer Pan had tried to deny the presence of evidence that the police had, whether or not it was real, they would interrupt her mid-sentence and remind her that evidence is evidence and there was nothing she could do to tell them otherwise. Step four is quite similar and it involves overcoming suspect objections. If the suspect begins to object or give reasons as to why they couldn't have possibly committed the crime, detectives will instead flip the story back on the suspect, saying that they have evidence to disprove their theory. Again, interrupting the suspect mid-sentence. Step five is an exhibition of sympathy. The detectives would have appealed to Jennifer's sense of decency. In some other cases, for example, police may say, "'You're a good guy, I know you are. I'm sure you didn't mean to kill her. Who does that? People make mistakes and accidents happen. Appealing to a suspect's sense of decency is good for building rapport, and it lets the suspect know that although the detective is there to do their job, they are also quote-unquote on their side. Step number six is when the interrogator ensures that the suspect doesn't tune out of the conversation, no matter how long the interrogation has been. This step technically takes place throughout the entire interrogation, and honestly, I think it's the most controversial one. The officer may reduce their physical distance to the suspect, have the suspect sit in a corner at the table, with the only thing between them and the exit being the interrogating officer. Really, it's an intimidation tactic, and one that ideally is meant to exhaust the person on the other side of the interrogation. I think the idea here is that as a suspect gets more tired with demands that they stay more awake, that they are more likely to slip up in their lies. But this is also the basis for many false confessions, maybe something I can talk about in another episode. Step number seven is when the suspect is offered an alternative explanation for the crime, ideally after they are already pretty tired, worn out, and feel like the detective is acting like a friend. The police may say, here's what I think happened. Maybe you wanted them to be intimidated. Maybe you wanted people to come into your house and take money so you could run away with it maybe things got out of control. Now, this might not be exactly what the detective said to Jennifer Pan, but the point is that they're trying to create a psychological justification for her crime, with the idea of making the actual murder seem like an accident or something that happened just as an aside. The hope is that the suspect will accept this theory, whether it was an accident or something that just wasn't intended to happen, and will confess to some aspect of the planning or execution of the crime, hoping for a lesser charge than what they be facing if they confess to the entire situation. Once the suspect accepts responsibility for the crime, whether it be by an alternative explanation offered by police or the full thing, the next step, step 8, is when the officer now works it into a full confession, something more robust and something that can be ideally used at a later date in court. Step 9, the final step in the read technique, is to then get that confession written and signed. The read technique fascinates me because it includes components of minimization tactics such as empathizing with the suspect, offering alternative storylines, or telling them that the victim might have had it coming, which is kind of a justification for what they did. But it also involves maximization techniques, things like getting uncomfortably close to a suspect, interrupting objections and denials, and lying about the presence of evidence. It is incredibly effective despite having some critics like I already mentioned, but in this case, it worked. In this third interrogation happening on November 22, 2010 with Detective William Goetz, Jennifer Pan would confess to hiring the intruders for murder, but she says that they were hired to kill her and not her parents. This may or may not have been one of the alternative explanations offered to Jennifer Pan in step seven of the read technique. Like I mentioned, it's possible that Detective Goetz approached Jennifer with the storyline that maybe she was feeling very trapped in her house and potentially suicidal. She was self-harming at one point, if you recall. It's possible he could have played on this once she began to agree with it. It's possible that Jennifer could have leaned into this alternative explanation, which resulted in the confession that detectives got. Whether or not Jennifer actually hired those intruders to kill her, it didn't matter. All police needed to do was implicate her in the solicitation of these murders. Jennifer would exit this interview in custody of York Regional Police and the other people involved in the planning, David Milo Vaganum, Eric Carty, Daniel Wong, and Lenford Crawford, would all be arrested shortly after. One of the intruders who entered the Pan residence was actually David Milo Vaganum. the identity of the actual shooter, as well as the other hitman, remains unknown. The trial would begin on March 19th of 2014 in Newmarket, Ontario, which is just north of Markham, approximately three and a half years after the initial home invasion. All defendants would plead not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. However, after Jennifer's full confession, York Regional Police were able to produce a mountain of evidence, including over 100 text messages sent between Jennifer Pan and Daniel Wong only six hours before the murder. The prosecution pointed out inconsistencies in Jennifer's story about calling 911, which included the demonstration of how she made that phone call in her second interrogation. Jennifer's father, Han, thankfully recovered and was able to testify for the prosecution, which greatly undermined her version of events once again. In fact, the court talked about Jennifer's ever-changing version of events that night, and in total, there were over 200 exhibits and 50 witnesses that would be involved in the trial. Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, David Milo Vaganum, and Lenford Crawford were all convicted on December 13, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for at least 25 years. For Eric Carty, he was actually prosecuted for an unrelated murder in 2009 and was in custody during this trial. His defense lawyer, Edward Sapiano, would fall ill and be unable to continue working, so his proceedings were actually declared a mistrial. However, he would be convicted of the Pan attack in 2015 and be sentenced to 18 years after pleading guilty. Han and Felix, Jennifer's younger brother, would also request in court that she be banned from contacting her surviving family members ever again, and this motion was granted. So why on earth do people do this? Both Menha Zaman and Jennifer Pan orchestrated elaborate plans to kill their entire families due to fear of exposure of their secrets. These situations where someone is hiding a secret that results in the murder of someone else are particularly interesting to me. Again, like in the case of Chris Watts, who killed his entire family because he was cheating on his wife. With Menhas and Jennifer, it's a bit different. Yes, their lives would change dramatically if their secrets got out. Like in the case of Jennifer Pan, once her secrets did come out, her life did change drastically. And if any of her friends thought that Jennifer's parents were restrictive or oppressive, it certainly wasn't anything like what they were doing once they found out she actually wasn't going to school. But it's different than Chris Watts killing his wife to avoid divorce proceedings. Yes, Menhas and Jennifer would likely struggle financially if they were kicked out of the house like Jennifer's father wanted to do, their secrets would be unearthed, and because they had no education or skills, their lives would probably be quite difficult. The two had spent their early 20s doing nothing. But lots of people lie about school. Someone may say they got an 85 in the class when really it was an 83 or a 79. People may tell their parents they were on the honor roll if they weren't, They may even forge high school report cards, but having that escalate to murder is very extreme. And when lies escalate to the point that they're so deeply interwoven and there's so many storylines and branches, I just get fascinated. It's one of those things in life that you'd like to believe are very rare, but according to literature about this subject, It's not entirely as rare as some people would like to believe, but it is still pretty uncommon. According to Dr. Hiram Mock, a psychiatrist focused on mood disorders and cross-cultural psychiatry, believes that in both cases, problems like this come from pressure that is common in immigrant households from these regions. If you remember, the Zaman family was from Bangladesh and the Pans emigrated from Vietnam. Oftentimes, these parents are leaving their entire lives behind to move to westernized countries and work menial jobs, oftentimes neglecting their own academic accomplishments. Many masters and professional degrees achieved in other countries unfortunately aren't recognized in North America. These families will put their own careers on hold, which can manifest as putting pressure on their kids to achieve their unfulfilled dreams. This can lead to a deception and fantasy because these children often don't have a life or really any friends, definitely no dating or sex. It's very strict. Dr. Soma Ganesan, a psychiatrist and founder of Vancouver BC's General Hospital's cross-culture clinic said that, quote, "'Feelings of resentment and desperation "'can fester inside of children "'who often have little opportunity "'to voice their own opinions.'" Parents express their love by providing safety to grow and opportunity to educate, but they have expectations of children to do well in school. In my opinion, it kind of seems like a trade-off that the children don't necessarily agree to. But this is something we saw in both cases today. The Zalman and the Pan family both relocated to Markham, Ontario, hoping that their future children could receive an education at some of the top universities in the world and gave up their familiar surroundings and previous careers to do so. Dr. Mock further elaborates that some of these children may become high-achieving in life, but they may never truly be happy. They may live with an empty feeling inside, because they never got the opportunity to explore who they are. But none of this is ever going to be a justification for murder, so why do it? Apparently, it's relatively common that ordinary people will hide extraordinary secrets. According to a 1995 highly cited publication by Dr. Marco Wilson, Martin Daly, and Anton Lara Daniel, there are two major types of familicide. One is the hostile accusatory killer who expresses hostility towards a spouse often related to infidelities like Chris Watts or their desire to terminate a relationship. With these offenders, a past history of violence is often very common. This doesn't strike me as relevant to Jennifer Pan or Menha Zaman, but I'm not a psychologist, but the next type of familicidal killer does, the despondent, non-hostile killer. These killers are most often depressed and worried about an impending disaster for themselves or their families. They typically kill themselves after their family and there is usually no past history of abuse in the home. This type of killer is much less common than the hostile one, and even more rare is that killer being a child in the home. Despite neither killer in these cases committing suicide afterwards, like the description of the despondent killer states, that paper by Dr. Margot Wilson says that even suicidal tendencies can't be used as a defining criteria. As well, despite both Jennifer Pan and Menha Zaman being 24 years old at the time of their crimes and not necessarily children, they were dependents in the home and relied on their parents for food, shelter, and safety. But they both argued that they weren't getting the support that they needed in their chosen career paths, so they chose nothing. They were both afraid of impending disaster, most obviously with Menha Zamen, who slaughtered his entire family only one day before they falsely anticipated him walking across the graduation stage at York University. With Jennifer, she could not commit to an education even after she was caught lying. She even asked the detectives at the Markham police station to not tell her surviving father, Han, that she was still lying and had no intentions of applying to university. The impending disaster for her was that she had no chosen path or no way out of this situation in her own mind. I wish I had more to say about this, but the overarching theme here for me is that lying is dangerous. These families had no idea what was coming to them and there are so many other options aside from becoming a family annihilator. The pans were attacked by someone who they never anticipated would take things this far, and the zamans were slaughtered by someone who they loved and cherished as a family member every day. Even his behavior at home was representative of what they called a golden child. I guess my lesson here is don't, don't do this. Don't let lies spiral into bigger lies because someone might get hurt. As of 2016, Jennifer was incarcerated at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, the same place that Ashley Smith from a previous episode would die by suicide. At the time of his sentencing, Menha Zamen was in the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario. As of now, I don't know where he's being held, but as long as neither of them are able to walk amongst us after causing irreparable damage, to hundreds of people forever and instilling fear in the community of Markham, Ontario, then I'm okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe in the new year. Be sure to check out my website, crimopediapod.ca for all of the source material in this case, if you're interested. If you're interested in reading more about the psychology of these cases, I highly recommend you check out that paper I mentioned by Dr. Marco Wilson. As always, I'll talk to you all soon.